with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, the World Bank has lifted the global economic outlook, raising China's forecast to 5.6 percent this year. And oil prices fluctuate after the Saudi Arabia pledges to cut the output by one million barrels a day. And now let's begin with our top story. The World Bank has lifted its growth forecast for the global growth in 2023, citing better-than-expected resilience from major economies such as China and the United States. However, it warned that the higher interest rates and tighter credit would significantly affect next year's performance. According to the latest report, the World Bank expects the global economy to climb 2.1 percent this year. Meanwhile, China's economy will grow by 5.6 percent this year, an increase from the earlier forecast of 5.1 percent. So, what more does the World Bank say about the global economy, and how could China contribute to the growth? For more on this, join us on the line now are Yan Liang, professor of economics, Willamette University, and also Ina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, first, Ina, the World Bank lifted China's growth forecast this year to 5. Six percent. What do you think are some of the main reasons for it? They believe,、uh, in essence, that China's strategy of stoking internal demand、uh, as a key to its future is going to work, and I think that's a big vote of confidence.、Um, given that the U.S. started、uh, beginning of the year at 1.7 percent, I don't know how 1.1 percent growth. Is somehow a, a better than expected resiliency. So、mm-hmm. I put a lot of this on China and its relationship with ASEAN.、Mm. And so, yeah, what do you think are some of the main reasons? And China has actually set an around five percent target for its GDP growth for this year. So do you think it's achievable? And it posted a growth rate of four point five percent in the first quarter, right? Well, that's correct. So、um, I think the World Bank cites the reason as、um, because of the optimized COVID responses,、uh, meaning the rapid reopening of the economy that helped to drive consumer spending, especially on domestic services. And so we continue to see a very strong expansion in the service sector. So I think that's probably the reason、um, that、uh, made World Bank revise the China's、uh, growth forecast upward. Um, so they also emphasize the upside、um, in terms of, you know, consumption recovery,、um, but also、um, low inflation, and so that would help to provide, you know, further uh, policy uh, sort of uh, maneuver,、um, and also that could help to continue to strengthen, you know, consumer confidence and demand. Um, but at the same time, they also warn about you know downside risks,、um, which is the continued、um, sort of sluggish real estate sector,、um, and also the global you know slowdown in growth and trade.、Um, but I think overall, as you、uh, mentioned about the growth target,、um, I definitely think that's an achievable target of about five percent.、Um, you know, first and foremost, last year's growth rate was three percent, so that's a very low base. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes the five percent、uh, very,、um, you know, in a way、um, feasible.、Um, but also, I think the continuous、um, rebound of consumer demand、um, first is because of pent up demand, 
but there are signs of continued expansion of consumption of domestic services. So hopefully that momentum will continue. Um, and so, but definitely there are also downside risks. So the policymakers would have to remain vigilant and use policy stimulus along the way. Mm. So Anna, so what sectors do you think can drive China's economic recovery this year? Well, ironically, it's a lot of it's going to be due to the U.S. in terms of putting pressure on China to replace things, uh, especially in, in technology. Uh, you see the, the tech companies uh, doing very well, obviously EV, electric vehicles, mm. very, very well. Uh, and, you know, China is now starting to dominate the market. Um, it reminds me of going back to 1970s uh, when Japan really made a big push. Uh, their ability to produce car, better cars at cheaper prices that consumers wanted uh, was really the key to the market. And despite all the kind of protectionist uh, things that the U.S. was doing at the time, it actually helped Japan until uh, they were forced to sign the Plaza Accord. So I, I really do think um, a lot of this, um, you know, what the World Bank is looking at, ironically, given that its closeness to um, developed countries, is a vote of confidence in the Chinese um government's toolkit and their ability to um, stimulate demand in a measured and orderly fashion, I think is the key uh, going forward here. And, you know, we've seen uh, this last week uh, as the government has signaled that it's going to uh, increase the amount of money available for lending, you're, you're starting to see real results, including in the cash, uh, Kaishin index. And yeah, so China's total imports and exports actually expanded by 4.7% uh, to nearly 17 trillion yuan in the first five months of this year. And exports grow by 8.1%. So what do you make of China's uh, export resilience for the economy? And how does the trade structure change? Right. So I think, you know, um, there is definitely, um, you know, downside risks of that export growth um, because we do see in May export has contracted by 7.5 percent. But that said, you're right, overall in the first five months, um, China's exports continue to hold up relatively strong um, despite, a, you know, sluggish global growth and demand. So I think that has to do with, you know, definitely that China has already established a very strong foothold in the global supply chain. So um, it remains very competitive. So when the global demand and the economy is down, um, the price competitiveness and the very um, you know, comprehensive, I would say, production line in China would definitely strengthen its competitiveness. Um, but that said, I think um, most of the economists are estimating or forecasting that the um, exports would continue to have these headwinds because of the global um, demand weakness. But in terms of the structure of, of exports, um, so for one, as we know that China has been upgrading its supply chain, its value chain. So now China is no longer really sort of reliant on, um, you know, the low value added, more sort of labor intensive kinds of exports, but rather, you know, like the exports of EV that um, I think Einar talked about, um, you know, Tesla EV retail sales have grew by 60% and its export has also um, grew, grew um, by the comparable uh, uh, rate. So there will be a lot more, you know, in terms of green tech, high tech products, um, including also like batteries and solar panels and things like that. Um, and also in terms of the areas where China exports, um, now it's ASEAN and EU. Mm. Um, they're seeing you know rising in exports, but the U.S.'s trade with China has gone down 
um, by five-ish percent. Um, so that again reflects a lot, not only um, the economic um, uh, prospects in the respective areas and countries, but also some of the geopolitical um, barriers. Mm. And yeah, also the latest figure shows that the Caixin Services PMI rose to over 57 in May. So what does it mean for the economy? Right. So I think that is what, you know, um, echo what you asked earlier in terms of the driver of the economy. So from the demand mm -hmm. side, um, the government is really trying to put the emphasis on consumer demand. But at the same time, I think, you know, fixed asset investment, especially coming from the private sector, is very important because um, these business expansion is what creates jobs and that increase income and therefore help to propel, you know, consumer demand. But then from the supply side, and in addition to the high tech sectors, as, um, you know, Aina talked about, it is the service sector that is really seeing the strongest rebound. So that includes, you know, travel, catering, um, other types of, you know, services. Um, so, and also retail sales, because retail sales is part of the service um, in terms of the competition. So all of these are very important. Um, China still has a lot of room to improve and to expand its service sector. Um, its service is about 50% of GDP, and you compare that to the advanced countries is 80%. So as China continues to upgrade its industrial production, it will also expand its service, and that is really what can help to um, you know, drive economic growth and jobs. Mm -hmm. And take a look at the global economy, Aina. The World Bank also raises a global growth outlook to 2.1% this year. But the World Bank chief economist said that uh, the year 2023 will still mark one of the slowest growth years for advanced economies in the last uh, five decades. So how do you look at the uh, global economy this year? Is the high inflation still the number one concern? Or what about uh, other you know, higher interest rates and uh, tighter credit conditions? Well, when you, you start talking about advanced economies, you know, you're really talking about the, um, uh, you know, a large part of the G7. And it was very noticeable. You had a group of countries who are very wealthy, who are now facing, uh, in the past, they've always said, look, we're wealthy and we always grow faster than you do and you're dependent on us. But you know, the exact opposite is happening. And you start to see this over the last few years, this division between the developed countries with very low growth, high debt. Um, internal divisions, et cetera, versus um, the global south. Uh, not all parts of it, the developing countries are still feeling a tremendous amount of pain. But the middle uh, countries, uh, ASEAN, uh, China, uh, India to a certain extent, they seem to be doing very well. So you're seeing this division in the world between the global south, two parts of it, and the developed uh, north. You know, uh, just recently in the last day or so, the German government released figures that uh, industrial production has uh, gone down considerably. Now, this is very important for a couple of reasons. One, it means that, um, you know, there's going to be less jobs in Germany, so that pushes it further into a recession. But second, it means that people are not investing. They're not making new factories. And this is a sweet and sour situation for China because China has the existing capacity. It's uh, still in the lowest cost uh, in terms of the sectors that it's in. So it will continue to do well despite a worsening situation. And I think that's you know, part of this vote of confidence. So, yeah, so what do you think are the challenges for the global economy this year? Right, I think for advanced countries, um, definitely that obsession about inflation is is one big, I think, obstacles. Um, so the 
uh, U.S. the labor the labor statistic bureau is going to release the new inflation data um, uh, on June the 13th, and on exact the same day, the Fed is going to decide if they're going to raise the interest rates or not. Uh, right now, I think the market expectation is about one in five that the Fed is going to, uh, you know, continue with rate hike. Um, so the great majority thinks that the, the Fed is probably going to hold the interest rate as it is instead of right, uh, raising it again. But still, I think that, you know, uh, rate hikes, uh, very aggressive, you know, um, over 13, 14 times of rate hikes since last year are going to, um, you know, continue to affect the economy in the longer term. So it's yet to see the full kind of impact of the rate hikes on the economy. And it's likely that, um, the inflation is probably going to moderate continuously. Um, now, I think the Fed has released some um, forecast. Um, they believe, you know, the, the inflation rate on the annual basis is probably going to be 4.1% um, in, 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 in May. But nonetheless, it is, um, it, it's on the declining trend, but it's still much higher than, you know, the 2% of, you know, their target. So it's very difficult to know if the Fed is going to raise the rate or not, and mm -hmm. also what would be the continued sort of negative impacts of that rate hikes. Mm -hmm. And so that high interest rate also definitely, you know, takes a toll on many of the, you know, um, low income countries because they are facing, you know, debt um, crises, you know, the debt services are really eating away a lot of their fiscal revenues and that really puts downward pressure on the economies. Um, so I think I agree with Ina. I think the middle-income uh, countries that are not having a lot of debt burdens um, would fare relatively well. Um, but for countries that are, you know, obsessed with interest rates and, uh, sorry, inflation rate and high interest rates, and also um, the low-income countries that have a lot of debt burdens, um, those countries are going to continue to suffer. Um, from these kinds of policy, you know, misleading policies. Mm. And Yen, so the Eurozone got a forecast increase to 0.4% growth for this year. So based on the recent economic data out of Europe, is the continent facing recession risks? I, I think it's a kind of a sure thing that they're going to hit some kinds of, um, you know, technical recession, even even if their growth rate may not go down to the negative territories, their, the growth rate is going to continue to be low. Um, so I think, you know, for one is they're still having the energy problems um, and that could take, again, longer impacts on these countries in terms of deindustrialization, in terms of, you know, moving their, their um, energy intensive productions elsewhere and so on and so forth. Um, and also, they also continue to fight with inflation. So I think there are a lot of moving pieces that are not necessarily to their advantage. Um, so I think the recent move in terms of, you know, trying to really find economic partnership with China and, and try not to put that geopolitical um, sort of mentality, the, the mindset at the center of their policymaking, I think that is a welcome step. Um, they need to put more emphasis and priority to getting their, you know, um, economic uh, in order. Mm. And so we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamette University, and also Aina Tangen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll take a look at why Saudi Arabia plans to cut its oil production. And stay with us. D-Dime, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Oil prices fluctuated after a decision by Saudi Arabia to cut production by a million barrels per day from July. Other major oil-producing nations will also extend their earlier cuts to the year 2024. This follows talks in Vienna between the OPEC Plus group of nations, which includes Russia. So, Ina, basically, Saudi Arabia, along with other OPEC Plus nations, is slashing the oil supply by a lot of barrels. So. Why is Saudi Arabia doing this, and what do you make of the timing? Well, I mean, it depends on、uh, how you're looking at this.、Uh, from Saudi Arabia's point of view and OPEC Plus,、uh, this is simply technical. They're looking at the demand. They do not want to repeat the mistake they made years ago, when, with falling prices, everyone started ramping up their production in order to, you know, gain revenues. Um, I think they have learned the lesson that when you do that, you simply are, in essence, subsidizing oil exports,、um, either through, you know, indirectly because you're not able to、uh, pay your、uh, your government services and things like this, or literally、um, the price of oil goes below、uh, below the price of production and transportation. So, I mean, they're they're acting in a very business、uh, type of way,、um, mm-hmm. but it'll seem as political. Uh, especially by Europe and、uh, the U.S., who will say, "Oh no, this is、um, you're helping Russia,、uh, or that you're being selfish, or you should be helping America," you know, with its inflation problem, and 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 this goes to the heart of one of the biggest issues. The U.S. keeps flailing around; it blames everybody except itself for inflation. But the truth is, the inflation that is in America that cannot be tamed is the one associated with services. If you look at the price of services, whether it's education or healthcare, elderly,、uh, retail, you name it, it has gone up dramatically. So, you know, once again, this will be a, a situation that politically,、uh, the U.S. and Europe will probably say, "Oh, you know, this is all political."、Uh, but the reality is, it's just purely technical.、Mm. So, yeah. So, I want to ask you about the oil prices. So, what's the outlook for the oil prices in the coming months, and what does it mean for the average people who are buying petrol at the pump? Yeah, so I don't think the oil price is gonna be negatively affected. I mean, in a significant way by Saudi's move.、Um, so, basically, out of the OPEC, you know, plus which is、um, including 23 countries, Saudi is pretty go- going alone in cutting one million barrel a day, and other countries either、um, just extending their Previous、um, cuts, or you know, in the case of UAE,、um, they're actually increasing the production. So,、um, you know, of course, Saudi does this because、um, you know the Saudi oil minister actually called it a Saudi lollipop,、um, in the sense that they wanted to you know raise the oil price for oil trader traders, and of course that would also help them to increase their oil revenues.、Um, right now, you know, the oil is trading at about seventy-seven dollars a barrel. But、uh, according to some estimates, Saudi needs the oil price to be eighty dollars a barrel in order to get enough fiscal revenues to, you know, fund their infrastructure constructions and so on.、Um, so their intention definitely is trying to, you know, cut the supply in order to, to drive up the price. But it's very um, unlikely, um, given the weak global demand and given that this is not a very concerted efforts.、Um, so according to Goldman Sachs,、um, they estimated that. 
Saudi's move is going to increase the price of the Brent crude oil by about, you know, one dollar to six dollars per barrel. So that is even less than you know ten percent of the current price. Um, so it's unlikely that you know this is going to drive up the oil price by a whole lot,、um, especially given the weak demand.、Mm. And what will be the impact on the prices globally and inflation? Right, like I said, this is not going to affect a lot on the oil price, and so I don't see this going to, you know, continue to heighten the inflation rate、um, to a great extent. And I would also echo with what Ida was t- saying.、Um, if you look at the U.S. inflation rate, for example,、mm. uh, one of the biggest components of that that、uh, that drives the inflation rate is the shelter cost, and that has gone up by eight、um, percent, almost double, you know, the the sort of the increase in the CPI. Um, so the housing costs is what drives a lot, you know, the sort of inflation within the U.S. and that has nothing to do with, you know, oil price at this point.、Um, so I don't, I don't really see how, you know, a, a marginal increase in the oil price is going to、um, affect、um, the inflation. That said, I think there's all a lot of you know moving pieces as well in terms of you know how the global economy is going to go in terms of you know Russia and and Ukraine conflict, and also in terms of you know international speculation、um, because there has been a lot of uncertainties in the international financial market, and so oil is you know oil futures is one of the most speculated commodities. Um, so I think depending on a lot of these、uh, changing sort of prospects of the oil market, the financial market, the、um, economic prospect,、um, all these could have impact on the price of oil. And as we all know, you know, oil price has been so much,、uh, so volatile, right? One hundred twenty dollars per barrel just a year ago, and now seventy seven dollars. So it's it's relatively uncertain. Mm. And yeah, you mentioned the global or international financial stability. So, do you think the U.S. and Euro banking sector stress、uh, will still be lingering there for a while? And do you think it will affect global financial stability? Yes, I think you know we're not out of the woods yet. Even though you know the regional banks seem to be now、um, at a relatively more stable stage. Uh, but again, as I mentioned earlier, the interest rate hikes, the, the effects are going to, you know, surface. It's going to, you know, cascade over the longer time period.、Um, not to mention, if the economy slows down, that means, you know, consumer debt, this means corporate debt, all these would become a, a relatively more、uh, serious issue. So I don't think we can completely rule out all these financial instability just yet.、Mm. So Anna, so we know that the oil prices have fallen for the past. Ten months. So, how do you look at this sluggish market demand? And in terms of demand, what are we predicting in terms of the different countries around the world? Well, you, once again, you have a division. This is going to affect obviously Europe much more than the United States.、Uh, U.S. is forecasting Brent cr-、uh, crude down, but it's not going to be、uh, drastic. But you're starting to see softness in the uh, gas markets, uh, natural gas markets. Um, and this just reflects overall decline of you know, global demand, especially in developed nations. Now, this is going to have a spillover effect in obviously、uh, around the world.、Uh, developing nations who supply resources are going to have a more difficult time. They're already、um, under pressure because of existing debts, dollar-denominated loans,、um, weak economies, and you know the slowing global demand just doesn't help.、Uh, but for areas like China and ASEAN, as I was saying earlier. Uh, it's the best of a bad situation.、Uh, global demand will go down, but、uh, both ASEAN and China will、uh, 
continue to do better uh, than the rest of average. And this is what the World Bank uh, report was indicating. But you're now beginning to see a, a, a very clear pattern that ASEAN and China are interconnected. So many of the intermediate goods which are being shipped to ASEAN nations to um, be shipped out, or assembled, uh, et cetera, um, come from China. So it's, in, it's not an extension of China, but it's a cooperative entity. Uh, this RCEP is really going to have a, a big effect on this by making it much easier for small and medium-sized enterprises uh, to get along. Uh, and in China, uh, the growth of the, the service sector, 55% of the uh, of the economy in China, very important for small and medium-sized business entities. And those are the ones that really create the jobs. So I think China is going the, in the right direction. I don't know about the rest of the world. Mm. So yeah, and so oil last traded at 100 US dollars a barrel in 2014. And in 2020, the oil price was in the range of 30 to 40, and now it's 70 to 80. So how did that happen? And how do you look at the oil market fluctuation moving forward with so much uncertainties. Right. So, um, you know, oil price has always been volatile. Um, you know, 2020, of course, was because of COVID. And so there was very sluggish global demand. Oil price was very much depressed. Um, and following the, you know, Russia-Ukraine conflict, um, the oil price has gone up. And so now is back down to the sort of more, um, quote unquote, normal historical kind of average level. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, um, I think there are just so many economic and political factors that could affect the oil price and also, you know, international sort of speculations on the oil prices. Um, so, you know, a lot of the these forces, they're basically reinforcing each other, right? If you expect the global economy is going to continue to go down, then you would expect the oil demand to be to go down and you would speculate against the oil price. And that could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But then the other way could, you know, go around once you change your expectation. So there's just a lot of, you know, um, moving pieces. So I think moving forward, um, you know, definitely countries that are growing and have high demand of oil, um, you know, countries like China or India, they don't necessarily have to, uh, you know, import from certain countries. I mean, they have more assets uh, than, you know, European countries or the United States for that matter. Um, So I think that rising demand doesn't necessarily raise the oil price um, to a great extent. So I would say the oil price probably will remain to be relatively stable at $70-$80 um, despite, you know, Saudi Arabia's recent move. Mm-hmm. But again, um, I agree that, you know, any uncertainty or any major uh, economic political events could definitely change the picture um, in a pinch. Mm-hmm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamet University, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.